All right, everybody. Thank you, as always, for coming to our Unusual Wales FOMC panel. Excited, as always, to have all of these great macro speakers here with us today. As those of you who frequent our spaces know, I like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So as we go along, all panelists, please feel free to discuss openly, add your thoughts to any given topic. The only request I really have is when someone else is speaking, please leave your microphones muted and use that little Twitter hand raise emoji if you have something to add. It just makes it easier for me to kind of navigate the panel and it helps us avoid any talking over each other, any feedback from echoing, etc. And of course, as I kind of go through our introductions here, panelists, please feel free to plug anything you're working on and anything you have that's come out, please feel free to pin it to the nest. Without further ado, let's jump right into our panelists today. First up, we've got Joseph Wang, our go-to Fed guy. Always happy to welcome you back, Joseph. As many of you know, he headed the Fed's open markets desk, <clears throat> excuse me, and has an introductory book on central banking called Central Banking 101. He's a CIO at Monetary Macro. How are you doing today, Joseph? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me. This is my favorite spaces. And for all of you who are just tuning in, this is, in my view, the best FOMC space. Take a look at past episodes. We've been talking here about higher for longer, higher longer dated yields for over a year, and all that has come to pass. And it's great that we to see new faces as well. Uh, really great to see Lynn Alden and, and Mike Green here today. These guys are top notch. Really looking forward to hearing what their thoughts are. Thanks for the kind words, Joseph. I'm really excited to hear their thoughts too. I think uh, having them both on here has been a long time coming. And on that note, let's welcome Lynn Alden today as well, the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, just released a book called Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better, and one of the sharpest minds around. We're excited to have her back on the UW Macro panel. It's been a long time coming. Welcome, Lynn. How are you today? Happy to be here. I'm good. Thanks for having me. And uh, I think it's going to be a great panel. Thanks for coming. You're definitely going to have a lot to add here today, I think. Next, we've got Michael Green, another long overdue addition to our macro panels. Michael is the chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management and the portfolio manager of the Simplify Macro Strategy ETF, ticker FIG. Michael's an expert on all things macro and asset allocation, and we're excited to have him join us today. Welcome, Michael. It's great to finally have you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Next, we've got Bob Elliott, a frequent panelist here on these macro panels. Bob is the CIO at Unlimited Fund, the former IC at Bridgewater, and the all-time leader in useful Twitter threads during the banking crisis. He's also a friend of these spaces, as I mentioned, so let's give him another warm welcome. Welcome, Bob. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here uh, on this sort of perfect constellation of uh, policy and all in one day. We're, we're here for it. Yeah, I'm very here for it, too. I always learn a ton on these spaces. Another friend of our spaces are here as well, The Last Bear Standing, an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. If you're not already subscribed to that, please do. A lot of valuable information in there. Welcome back, Last Bear. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, as always. It's always uh, uh, I'm always grateful to be a, a part of these spaces, so looking forward to, to it today. 
as am I. And last but not least, Jem Carson, a leading volatility expert who can explain the ins and outs of Charm, Vanna, and how options change the market. The founder of Kai Volatility and a regular on these panels as well. Welcome, Jem. Thanks, guys. It's always uh, one of my favorite uh, things of the month uh, to do. And I, I feel kind of extra special here having uh, my buddy Mike Green and, and Lynn Alden on here. Uh, what, a, what a great group of people. Looking forward to the conversation. I am too, man. I think this is going to be a really good panel. So let's jump right into the panel. Now, before we really get started, let's take a quick macro overview of the last month since our last FOMC panel. Reported October 26th, we had a real GDP annual increase of 4.9% with second quarter real GDP at 2.1%. A new Middle East conflict has arisen, raising humanitarian concerns and regional concerns in the markets. Recession fears seem to be ebbing in some circles. Layoffs continue in some sectors. CPI for all items rose 0.4% in September, bringing the non-seasonally adjusted to 3.7% over the last 12 months. Although some, such as Paul Krugman, said that the war on inflation has won, which I think we'll touch on later. Fiscal deficit fears remain, housing affordability remains problematic, and people are day trading TLT. And to top it all off, ongoing market volatility featuring large swings in equities has seemingly become the new day-to-day -day norm. So to start us off here, Lynn, can you let us know where we are in the markets and what the Fed may be thinking and where the market is in its cycle. Are we expected a difficult quarter four like last year, or has the equity short Bob likes to talk about subsided for a bit? So I think the defining characteristic of this cycle is the tug of war between fiscal policy and monetary policy, where the Federal Reserve is doing their best to tighten monetary as much as possible, and the fiscal looseness is pretty uh, extreme. And then ironically, the monetary tightness feeds back into more fiscal looseness in the form of higher interest expense, uh, which gets out to the economy and has a you know, partial uh, propensity to spend. Um, and so that kind of shows up in some of these data points. And we see, for example, that like you mentioned the, the very high GDP print that we just saw. And that's somewhat contrasted by, for example, if you look at purchasing managers indices and things like that, they're very low. Uh, a lot of things are negative on a year-over-year -year basis in real terms, while we also have these booming prints. And so that that shows how it's very sector by sector. Anything that's that's uh, more affected by the monetary side, interest rate side, uh, has been really kind of hammered. Whereas anything that's relatively immune to the interest rates, or in some cases even benefits from the interest rates, like if you're a very cash-rich company, if you're a you know, if you're a, well, a upper middle class retiree with a, a home and a fixed rate mortgage and a large money market balance, you're getting paid the higher rates go and it's not really affecting your liability side, right? So this is one of those things where both in terms of investment opportunities uh, in terms of economic data, it really, it's a very bifurcated market on which side of the deficit you're on and which side of the, the monetary pressure you're on. And it's just, it's there's not really been an environment like this in decades. And so that's just why it's a, it's a been a very unusual thing to navigate going forward. And I think that there's still not very strong recession indicators on the horizon for the next quarter or so. Um, <clears throat> that can change over time, but right now it's still that very kind of mixed outlook. 
So I'm actually going to kick over to Michael here. Uh, we will touch on some of what Lynn said a little later as well. But Michael, you recently had a post on Twitter that gave me a bit of a chuckle. You said, bonds and stocks, two drunks walking home together. Looks like they end up back at the bar they started from. Now, Michael, can you explain that for us, given the huge swings we see in both daily? Is this due to fiscal policy? Or as Lynn said, is this an environment we've not seen in decades? So I think that this is an environment that we've never seen before in some ways. Um, the point that I'm making around the asset classes is that a larger and larger fraction of assets are managed in portfolios that systematically rebalance to exposures. And so part of the buying for things like TLT, et cetera, it's just very simply people saying it's down as a fraction of my portfolio. Therefore, I need to increase, you know, my equities are up, my bonds are down. Therefore, I need to increase my bond exposure. I don't think there's as much mindful or thoughtful buying going on as people tend to think there is. Um, and when you build portfolios like target date funds that systematically rebalance like that, the assets effectively begin to trade like each other. They have to offer similar return profiles similar volatility and that process of rebalancing is really affected by both the dynamics of supply and demand. The point that I was actually making in that is that for all the complaints about the bond market, the reality is, is that the majority of equities have also gone nowhere for five years, right? So if I look at the Russell 2000 equal weight or the Russell 2000 value, or I look at an equal weighted S&P, it looks radically different than the um, mega cap dominated market cap weighted indices. And this is true across all cap sizes. And again, that speaks to me about a mismatch between liquidity that is created in market cap weighted in, in indexing. Now, moving over, let's kick it to Bob here from your tweet earlier today. Bob, you said U.S. inflation remains too high relative to the Fed's mandate, and neither the data nor the conditions align with it getting durably back to 2% anytime soon. In an environment where unemployment is 3.8% and growth is strong, somewhat stamping out inflation should remain the primary focus. Ultimately, the Fed is pausing not based on the facts, but on their concerns about being on the hook in the future for an economic slowdown. Bob, can you touch on that a bit for us? Well, I think it, it summarizes uh, what I, I'm thinking about well here. Like, look, if you if you just take the facts as as they are, it's true we've had a meaningful rise in interest rates over the course of the last uh, 18 months or so, but the economic outcomes that can be seen um, have not progressed anywhere near as uh, significantly as is necessary for the Fed to, to achieve its mandate. And of course, if we were in a circumstance where growth was meaningfully weakening or we had elevated unemployment, it would make sense to give up a little bit uh, on the inflation side, on expectations that the underlying macro conditions would bring that inflation down. But instead, what's going on, you know, the Fed's policy so far, they continue to be incrementally focused on the possibility that they might tighten too much to create a recession at a time when unemployment is at secular lows, rather than being focused on the fact that every day inflation remains elevated uh, you know, above that 2% or just elevated in general, it creates a further entrenchment of inflation 
uh, in the economy, which creates a much more challenging set of circumstances to take it out, a much more painful set of circumstances to take it out durably in the future. And so um, I, I think in many, you know, in many ways, what we saw was that hesitancy, you know, the shift is always towards the hesitant uh, to tighten further. Volcker once said, it, you know, the risks of tightening are always obvious uh, in the moment, whereas the risks of not tightening enough play out over the course of many years. And I think what we're seeing is a very classic early inflation cycle, early longer term inflationary cycle set of behaviors from the Fed. And, you know, it becomes even more acute when you look at the data and you're getting 8% nominal GDP prints uh, and, you know, elevated ECI readings. And, you know, their, their choice, they're going to come in today. They might jawbone or something like that. But basically, they said they're, they're out for the next nine months, give or take. And so um, that's really inconsistent with the data, and I think speaks really to the question of what is the reaction function. And the reaction function continues to look very growth uh, sensitive relative to inflation sensitive at this point in the cycle. Great points, Bob. Thank you. So, Joseph, on something a little bit more general in regards to the question of rate hikes, in your opinion, Joseph, where are we? And given the broad consensus that much of the effects from past rate hikes have yet to be seen, do we think the Fed will continue the pause this FOMC? Are we, you know, past the peak? Are we worried about the longer dot plots from before? What should we as active participants in the markets be thinking about or worrying about, Joseph? So as Bob suggested, I think the widespread consensus is that the Fed is is basically done and they're going to pause for some time. If you look at uh, short-term interest rate futures, there's a little bit of a probability of uh, another hike, but it's not a lot. So what, based on what Fed communication has been over the past few weeks, it seems like there are two things that are happening that are causing the Fed to either uh, to basically pause at this point in time. One, of course, is that we, over the past intermediate period, we've had longer dated yields go up significantly. If you look at the tenure, it's up over 50 basis points. Now, there is some degree of tightening in financial conditions coming from that. So that can, to some extent, substitute for rate hikes. So in effect, the market has already hiked for them. The other point is, as Bob noted, that um, I think there's more people in the Fed thinking that there's a lagged effect on rate hikes whereas um, the hikes that we did in the past haven't fully been felt in the economy. So even though the Fed may not be raising interest rates anymore going forward, uh, there, there has been, there's additional tightening coming down the pipeline. But from my perspective, I, I think their actions are very reasonable. And I take, take the point that growth has been strong, but I would note that the Fed's mandate is uh, you know, stable prices and full employment. And I think it's very reasonable to think that there's a connection between strong economic growth and inflation and so forth. But I think if you look past the past year, that, that doesn't seem to have been the case. We've had inflation come down and yet growth remains pretty strong. So there seems to be a lot of relationships changing. Um, uh, my own view is that I, I think that the Fed is not just done, but I think rate hikes are, rate cuts are probably sooner than expected, but I guess we'll find out in the coming months. And this particular meeting, I think, is well understood and not much will happen. 
Great. Thank you, Joseph. Before I move on to the next question, does anybody have any comments on what panelists have said uh, so far? Maybe do you agree, disagree about potential sooner rate cuts than expected? Yeah, I'll, I'll say one quick thing. I, uh, the, I think the reality is a couple of things have changed since the last meeting. Uh, I, I don't think the, the geopolitical piece is irrelevant. I think, um, I think there is some concerns uh, also given kind of the 10% decline in markets from the peak, uh, some of the liquidity uh, involatility issues in the bond market. Um, those are all big structural uh, tail issues potentially. And I think that more, I don't think we're giving credit to how much that may be making the Fed say, you know what, we're going into the end of the year. There's generally liquidity concerns going into the end of the year anyway. There's a lot of unknowns. Um, let's stop and make sure we don't break things. Um, that's my read on kind of where we are for the next several meetings. Um, I think the economic numbers have been obviously much stronger than expected. And to Bob's point, uh, you know, they're not acting in line with what the economy is telling them. Um, I really think they're starting to take pause because of the risks that are present. Thank you, Jim. Bob, did you have something to add there as well? I think the main question, is, there's always risks. Uh, and there's always something that could possibly break, right? And I think the question, and, and really, when I look at this, what I what I mostly care about as a market participant is what is the reaction function, um, not necessarily what should the reaction function be, because what I think should be, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, the chair of the Fed and won't be any time uh, in my lifetime. So it doesn't really matter what I think. What what matters is what is the reaction function, and these moments are actually very useful in understanding that reaction function. And I think what Jim is highlighting is right and is consistent with how they responded with previous instances of the possibility of risks, the way that they responded to, for instance, the SVB circumstance and, and, and basically not doing enough uh, and falling behind the curve following the SVB circumstance because of the concern of the risks. And so I think what we're seeing, the way Jim classifies is, is really right, which is you know, there's the dual mandate and then the third, which is around financial stability, and that their uh, reaction function is to be very uh, cautious, very concerned about what that financial stability element looks like at any point in time, probably overweighing it relative to, to the reality of the circumstance of what's actually going on in the real economy. And you put those two things together, and that makes for a very cautious because there is, as I said, always there's always something, right? There's always something. Look, stocks go up and down 10% all the time. Like, who cares? Doesn't really matter, right? It's not like we're talking about 30 or 40%. We're talking about 10% um, from very, very elevated levels. But it's clear the reaction function is focused on those possible tail risks. And so they're going to behave in a way that is more likely behind the curve rather than ahead of the curve. And we're getting further confirmation of that behavior. Thank you, Bob. Michael, see your hand there. Yeah, I, I think these points are raising kind of um, what I think is going to be the key dynamic in this meeting. Um, it's very clear that the Fed is likely done. I agree with Bob that the assessment is largely around risk avoidance at this point. Um, but I would highlight that the Fed probably has to come out relatively hawkish in their speech 
because they don't want to be perceived as caving on inflation. This feels to me similar to, say, the April 2021 speech in which Powell reiterated strongly that they were not anywhere close to hiking rates, only to see that reverse relatively soon afterwards. That's actually a way of resolving both Joe's and Bob's perspective that the Fed is going to have to try to communicate sincerity around the inflation battle while at the same time acknowledging that the data is deteriorating. Thank you, Michael. And and actually, I kind of want to touch back on something that Bob just said, uh, that notion that something may break. And that kind of gives me a really good segue into this. So, Lynn, you wrote that book we mentioned earlier called Broken Money. And, you know, just on that topic of things breaking. Lynn, can you give us an understanding, maybe historical, on responding to risks and on how you view what's happening in the Treasury market? For example, you've written... Quote, the Treasury expects to borrow nearly $1.6 trillion in net new debt during the six-month period covering this quarter and next quarter. What does that mean for financial stability, if anything, Lynn? So this is back what I said before about the tug of war between fiscal and monetary. Um, I think a lot of analysts are treating this as though it's a, it's a cycle like the past 30 years or so. Uh, where we've been in a disinflationary trend and where public debt levels have been relatively low. Um, the challenge here is that the more and more public debt you get on the balance sheet, the more mixed that interest rates become as an inflation-fighting tool, where um, you know, if you have a very low public debt uh, environment like the 1970s and most of the money creation is from bank lending, if you sharply raise interest rates, you slow down bank lending, uh, and that has a much bigger negative effect than any sort of um, increased deficit you get from that action because the public debts are so low. Whereas if you get to a, a point where we are today, um, it's a much more mixed outcome when you raise interest rates because on one hand, you still are pushing down on private sector, especially anything that's interest rate sensitive. Um, but on the other hand, the, the fiscal stimulatory and somewhat inflationary effects from those higher rates go out in from the public sector as well. And over the past year or so, we've seen them be relatively balanced. Um, if you advance far enough to an economy like Japan, you could actually be kind of across the event horizon where uh, their lending, you know, their, their loan creation is so slow, their public debt to GDP is so high that interest rates might have an outright, you know, positive effect on inflation. It's hard to say at this point. But right now, the United States is still kind of in that middle ground. And that's what makes this unusual, basically, that the reason I say it's not really an environment we're, we're, that's been around for decades is because the closest one we have <coughs> is probably the 1940s, which is when you have very fiscal-driven inflation. It's not bank-lending-driven inflation. It's not other types. It's, it's basically specifically fiscal-driven inflation. Um, and, of course, 80 years later, there's a lot of differences between now and the 1940s. Um, and that's, that's basically what we're going through now is that there's a, there's a higher structural background level of deficits. Part of that is demographics. Part of that is just basically accumulated decisions over years. And then that other part of it is the interest rate component. And so any sort of tightness in monetary policy gets partially offset by that just exacerbates the fiscal deficits even more. And to any extent that interest rates are effective at slowing down asset prices, uh, in the United States, unlike a lot of other developed countries, actually, but uh, this is, a lot of this is a United States phenomenon, 
our tax receipts are very heavily correlated with asset prices, not just the state of the economy, but asset prices in particular. And so when asset prices go sideways for a while or go down, that also starts blowing out the fiscal deficit. And so we're kind of in that more grindy sideways situation. Um, I, I generally also agree with Michael that um, my expectation going forward is that they're likely done in terms of their moves, but that they're still going to try to signal a hawkish view. So you're going to have a divergence between actions and, and narratives going forward. Thank you, Lynn. So this actually brings up another point that I want to kick to Joseph for some thoughts here. Kind of speaking on treasuries after Lynn's points, Joseph, you further wrote, Treasury appears to be considering further raising the share of bill issuance to support the market. There's over $1 trillion in elastic bill demand, so potential coupon supply could be below expectations. This would likely help the market, but temporarily. Joseph, can you explain why it would be temporary? And can you also comment on any of Lynn's points here? Will they be hawkish going forward? Well, I think Lynn made some great points. So if you just rewind to what was happening a year ago, Char Powell went to Jackson Hall, said that you know he's going to rate hike rates, there will be some pain. His mental motto was telling him that hike rates going to slow economic growth, create a recession, unemployment up, and inflation down. And none of that really happened. I think the big reason that, um, okay, so today what, what actually happened was economic growth accelerated, inflation came down, and um, unemployment remains very low. And I think a big reason for that is because all through that time, we had very large fiscal deficits, basically counteracting uh, monetary policy to some extent. Uh, to Lynn's other point that eventually there will be a time where uh, the stock of debt is so high, where you actually raise interest rates you actually be stimulating because it increases the interest income to the private sector. That's a really interesting problem. So in the economics literature, there's a very famous paper by Sargent and Wallace called some unpleasant monetary arithmetic. In that world, when we go to a world where the stock of debt is so high, uh, the, the paradox is that in order to um, tame inflation, your monetary policy is supposed to cut interest rates because Cutting interest rates actually reduces the interest income to the private sector. So it's it's a bizarre world. We're not there yet, of course, but it's an interesting thought experiment. So about issuing more bills rather than coupons, I think we should just step back a bit to see what happened during the last quarterly refunding announcement that happened a few months ago. So at these announcements, the U.S. Treasury basically tells everyone how much Treasury debt they're going to issue, and they break it down by 10 ors. And last quarterly refunding announcement, Treasury surprised the market with a significant amount of coupon issuance. And I think that played a big role in this huge run-up in yields we've seen over the past couple months. Now, Treasury can't control the overall stock of debt that it issues, but it does have some discretion as to what tenor it issues in. And that can influence financial, um, financial conditions since if they issue, for example, a lot of longer data debt, that's going to put upward pressure on the curve, basic supply and demand. Now, there's a lot of anticipation as to what would have happened at their next quarterly refunding date today. And what seems to have happened is that both they're issuing less coupons than expected. Uh, they're thinking that they would just increase coupon issuance one more time next quarter, but also they seem to be more open to issuing a greater share of bills. Now, that means that uh, they don't have to issue as much longer data debt, so there's less supply there it's more supportive of the market. Right now, 
for many of you who follow this, uh, we can see there's a lot of cash sitting in the Fred's reverse repo facility. That cash can be used to finance, be used to buy bills. So there's a lot of demand for bills there. The treasury can issue a lot of bills and there won't be too much of an impact in, on financial conditions. That seems to be the choice that they've made. Um, it's not forever because eventually the reverse repo facility and the money fund community will also not have enough cash to uh, purchase bills. But I think that's sometime in the future and, and definitely past next November. Thank you, Joseph. And I, I will want to touch on the reverse repos a little later. But first, Jim, on the same topics of Treasury, you've said that the Treasury is issuing a dramatic amount of paper pulling liquidity from the system and that that amount of overhead supply has been too much for this market to handle. Can you walk us through that, Jim? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, I mean, this is a toy model at the end of the day. But I think the important piece to understand is that liquidity uh, you know, as uh, you know, all of this issuance that's been coming out is not just a, a pull on, you know, on bond prices, right? That's not just creating these, this volatility in, in the bond market and pushing yields higher. But as it does, it pulls liquidity from the equity market and every other asset, right? These are, this is a world of, of liquid kind of, uh, you know, alternatives in the market, right? And, um, and so we've been essentially sucking liquidity out of the system right um you know in a window and period when there's not enough structural other flows and supportive flows and that's really what's caused this uh you know 10 to 15 percent kind of 12 percent pullback that we saw um the question is um you know it has been is is this reaction function as bob is speaking about it, you know now that they're seeing a decline is there a reflexive reaction function from the fed which there always is by the way to some extent you know the fed put is a thing, um, you know, are they now getting a little concerned given that volatility in the, in, that, they've, that they've created that there hasn't been enough liquidity really um, to absorb um, the issuance? Um, is, is the decline in markets, uh, you know, a, a threat? And are they slowing down, pausing? Uh, you know, is the Fed trying to come in and, and do something? And, and is the Treasury as well, as, as, um, uh, as Joseph highlights, are they also, you know, what is their reaction function? And I came out, you know, about three weeks ago and was very clear that, look, uh, the reaction function is what it's always been, which is to dampen volatility and to reflexively pull back a bit. And that is what we are seeing. That is what we will see from the Fed today. That is what we uh, are seeing marginally by the Treasury. And, and they also want to communicate that they stand ready to do more of that if we see more issues with liquidity. Now, ironically, and this is where I get into capital market kind of prediction stuff, right? What is, uh, you know, we're, we're entering an end of year period um, where there's structurally seasonally positive flows, which I can get into a bit later, that if they line up now, right as the, 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 the Fed blinks and the treasury blinks a bit, um, you could really do much of what we did in March of, uh, Feb, March of 2020 of uh, this year, right? With the banking crisis, you see the blink and then all of a sudden, guess what? Uh, you know, a month later, things are very, very different. So if you play from a liquidity model perspective, macro liquidity versus structural liquidity, there's a lot of things lining up here end of the year where the Fed's kind of worried. Uh, there's an end of the year liquidity crunch that can come along. There's geopolitical concerns. They're worried a bit about the tail risk. They don't want to act they're kind of in a box. They don't want to act too aggressively, but they do want to stop and pause and take 
noted and let people know that they stand ready. And I think the treasury is doing that as well. Um, and ultimately the question is, will it be enough, um, you know, timing wise here to stem the tide? And I believe it will be. Thank you, Jim. Does anybody on the panel have anything to add to what Joseph Lynn or Jim have said before I move on to the next question? I guess the one I, I might actually come back to them with a question um, around the dynamics of supply relative to demand is one of the things that seems clear to me in my conversations in particular with institutional investors is that they recognize that they should be rotating from equity exposures to fixed income or from private equity or real estate to fixed income in these conditions. Um, but in many situations, they can't. They have to move slowly. They have to go through an investment committee approach. With Yellen managing more towards bills, which is less stress on the market, how do you guys think about the potential for additional demand to emerge um, away from the equity markets? And does that actually, if the equity markets begin to sell off as people rotate from equities to bonds, does that bring forward rate cuts which in turn then increases the ability to do levered financing of fixed income. And we end up with a totally different market in six months. Thank you, Michael. And if you want, you can, uh, you can feel free to ask the question you wanted to ask if any panelists want to touch on that. Well, that, that's why I actually specified, you know, Joseph and to a certain extent, Chen, but anyone else who wants to, to comment on that, I'd be interested in their perspective. So, well, first off, I want to make a general comment because I've heard many of you guys mention that the Fed may be cautious about the market going forward and, and want to wait. So the Fed had their financial stability report out a couple of weeks ago, and the staff viewed that equities as rich, both by equity risk premia and by, uh, you know, fundamental stuff like PE. And they also build, viewed bonds as, you know, yields are not that high. Term premium is historically low. So... I know that asset prices have sold off both stocks and bonds over the past month, but I, I don't get that, the sense that the Fed is actually concerned about that stuff. So I don't feel that's motivating policy right at the moment. Um, but to Mike's point about bill issuance, so I, know, I think this is, I think of this, so I'll combine this with Jim's remarks. I think when you issue coupons, so usually what happens, of course, maybe someone has to finance that by sending, selling equities or so forth. But if you're issuing bills and it's being purchased by money funds, that's going to be financed out of money in the reverse repo facility. I think that adds liquidity into the financial system. At the end of the day, uh, I think that actually creates more demand for financial assets. Uh, one way you can look at this is that, you know, let's say that you had a trillion dollars out of the RRP into the banking system. The banks would have more reserves. There'd be more deposits. So banks have more money, uh, more deposits. Maybe that's more demand for banks to buy longer duration maybe somewhere someone else has more bank deposits that they want to go and rebalance into um, other assets. I, I don't think from my experience, there, there are a lot of people who buy, you know, duration for like tenure for carry, like just, you know, buy funding and repo. So that, but you know, we've had very low interest rates for a long time. So maybe that would change. Thank you, Joseph. So I, I have one other question that I really wanted to pitch to the panel as a whole. So anybody feel free to chime in here. Stanley Druckenmiller has recently spoken on the Fed and Treasury's actions, calling it a historic blunder. 
He said, quote, when rates were practically zero, everyone refinanced their mortgage, corporations extended. Unfortunately, we've had one entity that did not, and that was the U.S. Treasury. Janet Yellen, I guess, because of political myopia, whatever, was issuing two years at 15 basis points when she could have issued 10 years at 70 or 30 years at 180 basis points. She has no right to still be in that job. Now, is Stanley right in that? Did the Treasury blunder? I think it's very dangerous to go against Stan Druckenmiller, but the reality is that the only way we would have possibly won under that scenario um, is if all of those had been bought effectively by Russia and China. Because, um, you know, remember, the asset sits with the private sector. And so the gains of the U.S. government from issuing that low coupons would have been offset by losses in the private sector. Um that actually strikes me as a more dangerous condition than what we're looking at right now. Yeah, I actually made a similar comment on a podcast I did recently that, that, that there's that offset there. There's another factor that when you, when you just look at the overall duration of their, of their treasuries, even if they were to moderately boost the long end of issuance, it wouldn't extend average duration by that much. You'd have to have a pretty massive swing in terms of issuance to really move the needle on that. So while Yellen could have, for example, extended average duration by six months or 12 months, uh, it's hard to have a radically different average duration of, of U.S. government debt. If you look at decades of average U.S. government debt duration, uh, it doesn't vary by that much. Um, and so... And also, the system just has massive demand for the short end of the curve at the current time, which was not the case back in, say, 2019. But ever since 2020, there's just been this huge uh, kind of you know, desire for collateral by the system. So I, I actually also generally don't view that as, as, as impactful as Druckenmiller uh, proposed. Thank you. Last Sparrow, Jem or Bob, anything to add there? I, I would just say that. Oh, go ahead. I, I think the bigger question when you think about all, when you think about that is what uh, what was done with the money during a period of I mean, there's that period of low rates, but more generally, you know, a, a fi- almost 15 years of low rates. And the basic point is that you know there was an incredible opportunity to borrow at relatively low rates and engage in productive productivity enhancing investment. And that wasn't done. And instead, what we decided, you know, the federal government decided to do was mostly borrow a ton of money at much higher rates to engage in less productive investment at a time when the economy was already very hot. And so, you know, if you're going to talk about the complaints about how the government has navigated through the last 15 years, like that's the much bigger issue than it is like whether where exactly they issued on the curve at a particular time uh, in the in you know in the in the in the history my spirit do you have something to add there as well i know you guys unmuted at the same time yeah i was just going to add that um i think what what we're talking about about bill issuances versus coupon issuance now shows that the treasury is maybe now a little bit um more thoughtful about their issuance profile um than they maybe were at the time obviously uh nobody knew exactly what was going to happen over the coming 
couple of years back in 2021 or 2021 when uh, Chuck Miller was talking about it um, or when he was referencing. But now um, those bill issuances obviously targeting sort of funding from the reverse repo facility, which, as uh, Joseph mentioned, still has over a trillion dollars in it, um, is definitely a uh, preferable way for the Treasury to issue um, right now, which is why they are sort of changing their issuance maturity profile and leaning much more on the short end where there still is a lot of capital that's sort of um, dead money to the extent that it's in the reverse repo that can sort of fund uh, a lot of these issuances today. Um, but I also think just sort of as a broader point, I agree a lot with what Lynn has sort of been outlining about um, the, the fiscal versus monetary aspects. And I think um, I actually wrote a piece last week about um, looking at sort of private balance sheets versus public balance sheets for the past 15 years. And what we see is that since the financial crisis, basically debt formation has been uh, driven by the public sector as opposed to the private sector and household balance sheets in particular have delevered substantially and on a consistent basis since, you know, 2008. Um, and so I think part of the reason why we are sort of in this uh, tug, tug of war situation is that uh, the private sector, just as for all the reasons that we've mentioned, just is not nearly as sensitive to changes in interest rates um, because they've delivered to a substantial degree. Um, meanwhile, the public sector, I guess, in some ways is more sensitive to interest rates. Obviously, that that helps uh, blow out the deficit now. But um, the public sector, in some ways, doesn't really need to be as sensitive to interest rates as a private individual. Um, and to the extent that the government is going to basically cover its interest expense with new borrowing, that's arguably stimulative as well, at the same time that the public sector or sort of the private sector is benefiting from interest income, which we've talked about here before. So I think it is um, that it's a helpful lens to sort of view uh, sort of the sticky situation that we have, which is that the, the public sector is sort of in charge of debt creation and is taking the burden of that interest expense, whereas uh, the private sector is increasingly gaining from interest income and it makes it harder to adjust policy. Thank you, Last Bear. So kind of kind of piggybacking on that, uh, I was just wondering if anybody on the panel wanted to comment on Druckenmiller's positions where he said, quote, I am currently short bonds and law the front end given his supposed massively leveraged positions. But if anybody wanted to comment on that, that'd be great. But if not, I totally get it. Nobody's going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. Oh, I, I mean, All right, just, so... Just, no, just very quickly, I mean, what he emphasized is that he's long the front end, which basically means he thinks the Fed is done and likely to cut in reaction, and he wants a little bit of duration, but he's worried about the back end because it has not yet found a stable home, right? Um He's not shorted, but he's, or at least as I understand, he's not shorted in size, but he's basically said uh, the curve needs to steepen. And I, I think that's, I think there's a general consensus around that. Pretty good what? distinction to make, I think. Lynn? One thing I was just going to add is that um, Druckenmiller um, is known to change his positions pretty quickly when new information comes in. And now with uh, today's kind of updated treasury information, it's possible that Druckenmiller's views are different than they were even yeah. days ago. So I, I would be hesitant to read too heavily into it. That's a very good point. Yeah. And I would just highlight that anybody who's been listening to this spaces for about two years uh, would, would have been in that exact trade uh, aggressively, um, especially coming out of Feb March of this year. Um, that trade has play, played and paid aggressively 
um, uh, now that uh, you're hearing it all over uh, CNBC, uh, much like it paid before you went into Feb March, um, uh, you know, these are the times to lighten up on that briefly. Um, although I think we all agree on here, at least the people that have talked uh, regularly for, for the last two years, that that is the secular trade. Um, and so uh, it's, but it's important to keep in mind positioning and narrative and what's happening. Um, again, that has been the trade aggressively for a while. We've been on top of that. So, Bob, I see your hand, but I actually no, actually, go ahead. We'll we'll get Bob's points here before I move on to the next one. What you got, Bob? Yeah, I was just going to say the the thing that I think if you if you look sort of cross asset that seems most interesting right now is you look at those December twenty fours and you got hundred basis points of cuts priced in at this point. You know, pause until next summer and then a, a swift hundred basis points of cuts. You know, that's a, a place where particularly if you're trying to construct a portfolio of bets, where you know that looks um, a little like a little too many cuts in the market, a little cheap, whereas if you look at equities, they look a little too rich given the moves that we've seen. And so, um, and so I, I think there's, uh, you know, in a market that's totally priced in as a soft landing sort of across the board as you sort of look through it, the question is, where are those couple of opportunities uh, to, that, to take advantage of that mispricing? And so, you know, on the margin, I'd be taking the opposite side of what Druck has to say in terms of buying the heck out of the twos, particularly as it pairs with an equity position. Thank you, Bob. So I am going to pivot a little bit here. Uh, Powell said earlier this month, quote, we know the fiscal path we're on is ultimately unsustainable. So kind of what I want to touch on here is what exactly did Jay Powell mean by that? And is he correct? So I want to start here with Michael. And then I would also like to kick to Bob, uh, given Bob's comments on the 2% inflation rate being a logical target, given our past deep dive into the treasury so far, will we get back to 2% ever? Does that range just no longer matter? Let's go, Michael, then Bob here. Um, so on, on most contemporary measures, like if we actually take something like owner's equivalent rent and replace it with current levels of rent change, uh, where are you below 2%? Um, and if you look at elements like the accumulated inflation um, from entities like Trueflation that are calculated on a continuous basis, we also are below 2%. And they are incorporating an element of house prices, not just the uh, rental component there. Unfortunately, we've got a horribly lagging construction. Um, and we also have a serious problem with uh, uh, pricing power in the form of monopoly power that is um, leading to a lot of areas experiencing price increases that are above what would be warranted. Um, I think you alluded to it earlier, and I think it's really important for people to understand, like inflation has largely retreated on contemporary measures. If you use market-based measures as compared to imputed measures, and just again, to clarify what that means, a market-based measure is an actual price that transacts an imputed measure is a price that is calculated based on an observed dynamic. For example, banking services, the cost of those banking services is perceived as the spread between the risk-free rate and the rate that is paid on deposits. When you have an event like March in um, uh, uh, the banking system, 
that led to a surge of funds to very safe banks like JP Morgan led to a significant widening between the risk-free rate or the continued widening of the risk-free rate and the rate that is paid on the majority or the increasing fraction of deposits in the United States that shows up as hugely inflationary, even though no actual cash hand changed hands, right? And consumers are rapidly voting with their feet and moving into money market funds, um, you know, which suggests that they don't actually value the banking services in that same way, with the exception of a few companies like JP Morgan, which are perceived as effectively pristine. Um, and I think this is one of the problems, right? It's just that the general quality of the government data sets, they're designed for a period known as the Great Moderation in which not a lot of interesting stuff broadly happened. That means that they've tried to smooth out the fluctuations. And unfortunately, that smoothing process when you inject volatility actually causes you to have significantly lagging and then uh, significantly lagging information so we're looking at an inflation that I would argue on most fronts is largely gone. Um, and the fact that this has happened in a 3.8% unemployment and a claimed 4.9% GDP environment is actually really an incredible observation when you think about it, that we've seen that type of inflationary slowdown and a retreat into the twos um, on contemporary measures, it, you know, I just think this is a really, you know, this is actually suggesting that the key risks we should be paying attention to have more to do with a credit event and potential deflation than a resurgence of inflation. Thank you, Michael. Bob, I'd love your thoughts there as well. Well, I think the, the main question, uh, you know, I think part of the question is, you got when you're looking at this, you got to focus on what the Fed, which is that they are you know focused on what the reported inflation measures look like and so um, you may think that they're insufficient you may dislike them you may think they're lagging you may think all of those things but what matters is what's being reported and that is too high relative to the fed's mandate and then i think the second and will be too high relative to the fed's mandate for a for the you know in the reasonably medium term future i think the more broad question is whether there's enough of a decline in wages uh, relative to productivity growth in order to create a structural enough of a structural disinflation that will um, that will bring inflation durably down to two percent? Are we just going to touch two percent or just below two percent? Um, you know, something like nine or twelve months from now. And then we'll reaccelerate, um, or are we going to see a circumstance where, um, or, or are we going to see a circumstance where there's enough of a reset in the nominal income growth of the economy in order to create enough of a slowing of spending in order to create a structural lowering of price growth? And that's where that's the nubby issue that I think I don't quite yet see how that's getting resolved. Because nominal wage growth still looks too strong in an environment where we have unemployment rates at three and a half percent or three point eight percent. Now, get unemployment up to the fours or the five, you know, up to five. Then we'll start, I think, talking about resetting wage wages so that they're in line with that durable fall to two percent. But we're going to have but the adjustment has to happen first before we get there. Thank you, Bob. Lynn and Jim, I see your hands. Let's go Lynn, then Jim. 
So uh, a topic I don't see covered very often, but I think is, is, is important, um, is the international effects of the Fed's tightening in the sense that um, when they strengthen uh, real rates and the dollar as much as they have, it puts downward pressure uh, on the economies of a number of countries that have a significant amount of dollars denominated debt. Um, and that curtails their demand in various ways for, you know, basically their overall economic growth gets tightened. Um, it can drop their oil demand, their overall just kind of import demand. Um, and that's actually an important indirect component of bringing down inflation here in the U.S. Like, for example, during the the, the well-known Volcker um, sharp raise rates, raise rates period, um, that really squeezed Latin America and reduced their oil consumption, uh, which was a component of this. And so I think the, the more interesting question to ask is not, can the Fed get down to 2%? Are they already at 2% by some metrics? The question is, once they let their foot off the, the brake, how much of that returns? And so, for example, if the Fed were to be perceived as dovish, if they were perceived as done with the rate, rate cycle, uh, willing to cut rates, if you were to get like a meaningful uh, decline in the dollar index, like, you know, uh, 10, you know, like a thousand basis points, for example, one of those like drops from, you know, 100 something to 90 something or one of those like big dollar just kind of, you know, cycle bear markets, um, that could give you a whole nother liquidity cycle globally that could give you another um, boost in global PMIs, uh, which would potentially bring back energy inflation and bring back other types of inflation. So for me, it's less about trying to navigate and see what, what points are they going to hit. The question is, after they hit those points, or if they're, if they're already roughly at those points, how much is it based on them still actively holding it down uh, versus when they just let it go? Yeah, I think I think both Lynn and Bob make very important points and make a common, you know, have a common statement, which is durably below two percent, right? The the key, and I keep stressing this, is you have cyclical inflation and you have secular inflation. Those are very different things, and we're trying to the Fed is trying to manage this secular reality, uh, these structural issues of deglobalization and protectionism and. And, and, and geopolitical issues, right? All with this cyclical factor. And yes, they've taken interest rates from zero to five and a half percent, which is dramatic and are having some effects on this cyclical uh, inflationary, you know, on the, on the, the, the headline number, uh, you are seeing that. But, but are we to believe that a five and a half percent move uh, in, in the Fed funds rate uh, as quickly as they have uh, and, and the incremental amount of difference that's the, the dent that's made in secular inflation in the short term is enough. Uh, I would say history would say uh, that's not the case. I would say the numbers under the hood would not uh, would not agree with that. I, I also think if you just simply o open your eyes to what's happening with labor and protectionism and, and deglobalization, the, the, the trends are pretty clear. The Phillips curve will matter again. Uh, and people have given up on it. Um, it did not matter because we had globalization and, and it was no longer about our labor force. It was about global labor um, and the imbalances. But once you close the system again, that changes the reaction function. And so much like the 70s, um, again, it is not the same. There are other major differences. But as the closest relative time we've had inflationary pressures, um, you know, you can bring down inflation below 2% for some time. It, you, you can get celebrations from 
from all around. But the true issue is not the lag in the data, but the lag in, in, in the understanding of, of what is driving the inflation, how the structural realities of inflation are just much, much higher. Thank you. And uh, Bob had to run real quick for a TV spot. He'll be back in a bit here. For now, Joseph, you recently tweeted that, quote, massive runaway fiscal deficits are actually bullish. Joseph, can you explain that a bit more and maybe some of your take on the concept of debt-fueled growth as well? I know Lynn said that in the long run, she expects current practices to lead to persistent above-target inflation driven by large monetized fiscal deficits. Regarding debt-fueled growth, what are some of the limitations uh, as well, and is it sustainable? And then, Lynn, I would like to follow up with you as well after Joseph's response. So I think fiscal spending is obviously bullish for the economy. Now, if it's financed with just issuing debt, in a sense, it's kind of financed by, by printing money. Treasuries in the global financial system are, are very money-like. So you know, you're basically doing helicopter money and spending. And that, as we've seen in uh, 2020, very good for the stock market, good for the economy, not good for inflation. Um, I think the limits here are, are obviously, one, if you have a monetary authority who's pushing back against that, or, and also if you issue debt in longer tenors, you can have interest rates go higher and that could push back against that. But, you know, it seems like right now that we have the treasury adjusting looking like it's going to further adjust issuance. So that's going to take away some of the upward pressure in, in its debt financing. Um, looks like the Fed is on hold, looks like. So I, I think that, you know, if we continue to have deficit spending, large deficit spending, I, I think that's positive for the market and for the economy, uh, depending, of course, on how the Fed will react. Um, one, one other note that, that I note about just this debate about inflation is, is that, you know, we're hearing ultimately the Fed is responsible to the government, which of course is accountable to the people. And we hear a lot of people complaining about, you know, maybe we should have a higher inflation target. Now, I don't know if that will happen, but we have that conversation now and it seems to be led by some prominent people. And that's also something to think about when we think about the longer term uh, trajectory of inflation and Fed policy. These are just rules made by people, made by politics and culture, and, and that could change going forward. Thank you, Joseph. Lynn, do you have any responses to that or anything to add? No, I largely agree with it. I think that as long as we're in the state where the Fed is quantitative tightening, but uh, there's still being capital pulled out of reverse repos, we're in a fairly balanced liquidity situation. Uh, that's been the case for a while now. It's, it seems set to continue. Um, the only time that really kind of rubber would meet the road is if these large fiscal deficits are still being run at a time when a lot of that liquidity has been used up. Um, and so right now you have mixed to tight Federal Reserve policy. Um, you know, the fact that reserve repos are draining out and, and, and kind of offsetting part of their stuff is, is what, why I call it mixed. But generally, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're trying to be tight over time. And that pushes against fiscal, um, but it also exacerbates fiscal with the higher interest expense. And so I think that the next quarter or two still look to be in this kind of limbo state of them, you know, kind of pushing against each other in various ways. Uh, we're not in we're not currently in the period of uh, monetized fiscal deficits. This is uh, non-monetized fiscal deficits. And so that's why we see 
relatively strong economy by some metrics, uh, but we don't see great asset prices. We also don't see a crash in asset prices. And so my base, my base case for a while has been this flat, choppy equity and housing market. Um, that's so far what's been materializing. It has been kind of surprising to see the um, difference between the, the, you know, the large and the small or the, the mega caps and equal weight. But overall, it's been this kind of choppy range bound market, both in terms of liquidity uh, both in terms of asset prices and then even to some extent the economy itself, when you contrast things with like, you know, the weak PMIs versus the very strong, uh, you know, real GDP print we just saw. Um, and so I, I think that the next couple quarters are still in that kind of tug of war range bound fashion. And not until we get closer to the drainage of the reverse repo would we seriously um, have to consider when monetary and fiscal policy kind of really butt heads. Thank you, Lynn. So the FOMC likely pause will be released in just about a minute here. But while we wait for dot plots and give some people a little bit of time to look over the release, Last Bear, in your latest newsletter publication called Uncle Sam's Tab, you outline a number of potential pathways to paying the U.S. federal debt, ranging from taxes, new debt, and printing more money, kind of touching on the costs and benefits of each. Ultimately, I believe, if I understood correctly, you argued the most progressive solution would be via budget reform. Now, given Joseph and Lynn's comments regarding fiscal deficits, Last Bear, can you walk us through what reform needs to take place and what benefits this could have versus, say, higher taxes in general? Well, I think I think the point there is, you know, we talk about fiscal spending, but obviously what we really are talking about is a deficit, which is the difference between revenue and expenses. So we can spend as much as we want money or, you know, spend as much money as we want. Just a question of how it's financed, whether it's financed by sort of taking income out of uh, the private sector via taxation or whether it's done via, um, you know, debt accumulation at the public level. And so um, the, my point around the progressive nature is I, I find it a little interesting that a lot of people who I would consider on the progressive side of the political spectrum um, are very in favor of, of deficit spending. But um the reality is then you're basically issuing new debt, which, you know, serves as interest income as opposed to, you know, to largely higher net worth people um, who are funding those um, either directly or through pensions or, uh, you know, 401ks, that kind of thing, um, as opposed to just taxation, which is sort of a, you know, a, a taking of private sector income. And so to the extent that we had large spending um, but we're paying for that with an offset in private sector income, and we can choose how we want to sort of tax uh, society for that, then it, there's not as much of a tug and pull um, between sort of fiscal um, and monetary issues. I think the, the situation now is that we have fiscal deficits, um, you know, that we're accumulating via debt, and that makes it a, a lot more challenging to manage. It also, I think, exacerbates a lot of income inequality type issues. Um, because of the way that sort of we're funding it with sort of socialized debt as opposed to sort of taxation. So that was the point there. Um, I don't, I'm not coming out with a, you know, a new taxation plan, but just throwing in that, that aspect that there is sort of the revenue side of thing, which uh, we don't really talk a lot about, but is sort of a, a relevant lever. Thank you, Last Bear. So now that the Fed has officially paused, 
kind of give folks a little bit of time here to look over. But in the meantime, does anybody have any comments to what Last Bear just said or anything that you're seeing as you kind of go through the report here? Any surprises at all so far? So now I think the wide consensus that was expected for this one was that the pause would continue. And actually one point of interest that I've noticed is it seems kind of like the timeline for when the Fed may consider cutting rates has moved up a bit based on some analysts. And I'm curious to the panel, nobody in particular, feel free to chime in. Do you think that that timeline has moved up? Do you think the likelihood of the Fed cutting rates lies just around the corner? Or are we still you know, thinking late 2024, maybe even the 2025, as some were speculating in the past? I think rate cuts are more likely than what's pricing to the market. I'm actually surprised the market stopped fighting the Fed. But then I guess they probably lost a lot of money over the past two years. No, I, I agree with Mike's assessment that if you look at you know, a lot of recent measures of inflation, things have come down a lot. Add to that, of course, 10 years gone up a lot. And longer dated interest rates have a much more in large impact on economic activity. You know, when you're hiking and lowering the overnight rate, it doesn't really do anything. No one borrows at the overnight tenor. People borrow, you know, say five, 10 year tenor. So as the 10 years gone up so much, that's a meaningful increase in, uh, I think, tightening of financial conditions that will feed through to the economy. You add to that, if you look across the world, you definitely see slowing throughout the world. And that's going to put downward pressure on commodity prices and to the extent that we have, um, let's say, inter international commerce that, that will impact the US as well. So to me, it makes perfect sense. One other thing that I'll note is that I think Fed officials have been talking for the past few months about how they look at rates in the terms of real rates. So as inflation has come down, if you want to maintain the same level of real rates, you should naturally adjust your uh, nominal rates a little bit. So on that alone, I think it'd be make sense to have, say, a cut maybe in March or something like that. One other, one other time frame that I'd seen, actually, uh, that I'll kick over a little bit to Last Bear here. Last Bear, to start us off here, do you have anything in that report that surprises you at all? Do we think the Fed will cut earlier than expected? Um, right now, a lot of traders are betting that the Fed will cut in June 2024, which is why that, that, March, uh, that March speculation by Joseph was a little interesting to me as well. Um, I think that there's a tends to be a difference between the pace of rate hikes and rate cuts. Rate hikes happen gradually in a very sort of, you know, gradual pace that is well understood. Um, and rate hikes tend to happen faster and happen in result to sort of changing economic data, whether, you know, when it becomes clear that a slowdown or recession is, is imminent, um, there's a, a larger rate cuts that, that occur, or if there's a, you know, some large incident. So I, I tend to view rate cuts as being sort of more binary when they occur, but, but having a larger impact. So I think it's hard to say, you know, whether it's going to be mid 2024 or early 2025 or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I think it will be 
um, more extreme, you know, when it happens. And so if I was to like look for value in the forward curve, um, I would sort of expect it to kind of come, um, you know, from sort of the mispricing of that downward slope, I guess. Um, so in other words, look, don't think about exactly when rate cuts happen, but assume that when they happen, it'll be larger than, you know, 25 basis points. Um, and that will impact sort of the, the curve from, let's say, one to three years out. Um, so I think I, I don't have a specific view on, on when the Fed's going to cut. I don't think that it will be um, in the next six to nine months unless things dramatically sort of deteriorate from here. But um, I think that when they happen, uh, they tend to be larger than, than people expect. Thank you, Lasper. I do I do like getting a lot of people's different opinions on this. So this is a really good discussion here. So Jem or Lynn, any comments from either of you on a potentially earlier than expected rate cut? What would that mean for the market as a whole? And then as a follow-up to Lynn, we'll go Jem then Lynn, but as a follow-up to Lynn, would that add to financial instability given your expertise on the brokenness of markets? Uh, I'll, I'll dive in here for a second. Um, Look, this, this outcome, as I mentioned, is reflexive, and I think we have to understand that. Um, uh, I think we sit at a very important point here uh, seasonally, and I, and I don't think that's irrelevant to the Fed's decisions. I think everybody thinks of these things in uh, devoid of calendar effects and, uh, and other realities, but I, I do think the end-of-year liquidity concerns um, are real, given the amount of issuance that the Fed is trying to get done. I think liquidity and uh, dries up dramatically as you get to the back half of the year. And again, demands on liquidity are, are stronger. So I think the Fed is cognizant of that. And I think they uh, are, are pausing in part because of that. Um, I don't think, uh, it, as long as these numbers, uh, these economic numbers uh, continue to stay, I mean, they've been, I think we're under... Uh, you know, we're, we're not talking uh, very clearly about how strong these economic numbers have been the last month or two um, and in terms of GDP, in terms of employment numbers. The, the reality is um, the Fed is not about to reverse course unless markets have a tail. And I think they're very cognizant of the tail right now, given the current price action of markets, of the bond market, of, of the calendar effects and everything that we're talking about. But if we get past that and market, the market is stable and strong into the end of the year, um, I don't think the Fed is uh, reversing course anytime soon. And if anything, I think they'll be pushed back into the fray. So I, I, I would argue that it's not just about the current CPI numbers. It's about the structural realities. And a stronger market will mean stronger uh, economy and stronger inflation. And if, if they come step into the fray, much like they did in Fed March, even in marginally so, given the effects, um, I think this market could reflexively force their hand again. And guess what? Transitory gets pushed out yet again, just like it has for the last two years again and again. Thank you, Jim. Lynn, I'd love your thoughts. I don't have a firm view on their their cut timing, but I'll point out that basically uh, with today's um, much weaker than expected PMI prints, um, you know, we also see, for example, uh, Atlanta Fed's GDP now has reduced their estimate for uh, the current quarter's growth. Um, and so that, that very strong GDP print uh, is behind us now, and things are still positive but softening um, along many metrics. And 
when we think about the Fed's policy going forward, it's not just the level, it's the amount of time. And, and even just holding rates where they are continues to have effects. Uh, and going back to my prior fiscal versus monetary points, that continues to have effects that are both contractionary and stimulatory. So, for example, every quarter that goes by, there are more uh, levered entities that have to refinance some of their debt at these higher rates or otherwise run into problems. So that continues to put downward pressure on them. At the same time, interest expense uh, by the federal government, merely by holding rates where they are, continues to refinance upwards and result in large and larger fiscal deficits from that angle. Uh, and so I, I think it's perfectly sensible for the Fed to be steady right now and just to basically see what what effects their existing policy is going to have going forward, because that, that combination we saw in late 2022 and then uh, briefly over the past couple of months where you have, you know, dollar strong um, rates up and oil strong, um, those are that that leads to financial instability. Um, and I think they're, they're trying to avoid that type of tight situation. Um, but, you know, basically, I think we, we still see softness ahead. Um, but in that very mixed regard, that is, it's a very bifurcated economy and both sides of the equation continue to get harder. So all, all that junk debt, all the small business loans, all of like these shorter duration, higher rate things, you're just going to keep refinancing and putting more pressure in that fiscal deficit is still going to be there quarter after quarter coming out with just very large input into that economy. Thank you, Lynn. Now, I kind of want to pivot here to touch on something that we briefly nibbled to earlier in the panel and that I think is kind of undervalued and not spoken about enough. Now, Joseph, you and Lynn both actually have spoken significantly about the reverse repos. You wrote that the ongoing large declines in the RRP have not impacted financial conditions, but it will eventually increase the level of bank reserves and deposits. And at a minimum, this will ease the bank funding conditions. Joseph, could you explain this in a bit greater detail, especially given the continued pause today? So, well, so as, we, as we know, the Fed did large-scale asset purchases, and they printed a lot of money and spent it into the banking system. So, so that money, some of that went into what's called the first reverse repo facility, which is kind of like a checking account at the Fed, but it can only be invested in by money market funds. Over the past couple of years, money market funds have been putting a lot of money into that reverse repo facility because they have not been able to get better, uh, better returns in the private markets. But starting in June, the Treasury started to issue a lot of bills, and just by the you know, law of supply and demand, you increase the supply of bills a lot, bill yields go higher. That made bills more attractive to money market funds. So they started taking money out of the reverse repo facility and buying bills instead. So the reverse repo facility had about you know, 2.2 trillion a few months ago. Now it's down to about 1 trillion because money market funds continue to take money out of the reverse repo facility and buy Treasury bills. Now that looks to continue because bill yields remain attractive and because the U.S. Treasury is telling everyone they will continue to issue a lot more bills. So you can see that over time, uh, that will go to zero pretty quickly. So what happens when money leaves the reverse repo facility? Well, first off, uh, it goes into the Treasury's checking account at the Fed. So Treasury borrowed from a money market fund, 
And so money goes out of the reverse repo facility and into the treasury's checking account at the Fed. And that's actually where it's been staying for, for the past month. So the treasury's balance at the Fed in June was about $50 billion because of the debt ceiling. Now it's about $850 billion. So the treasury has been just kind of piling up cash in its checking account. But going forward though, since it's kind of met its, its target balance, it's going to continue, it's going to be spending the money that it borrows. And that money then is going to flow into the commercial banking system where the banks will have more cash. Now, if the banks have more cash, there's, they're not going to need to borrow as much. They're not going to need to uh, compete on deposit rates. They're not going to need to issue as many CDs. So that's going to ease their funding conditions. But what it also does though, is just like quantitative easing, it increases the supply of deposits of M2 in the financial system. And I think a lot of people look at that and they think that will have an impact on financial assets because, well, someone has more deposits, they might want to rebalance that into riskier assets. Um, again, this happens to some extent, but my, my sense is that there are a lot of people who look at this and have a mental model where this is good for risk assets. And if that's their perception, then I think that definitely makes it into market prices and in effect, eases financial conditions. I think the other thing to add on to that is is just the the dynamic of QT as well. So I think that dynamic of the the draining reverse repo facility has basically offset um, QT for um, you know, and so we don't really see effective tightening because basically, if you think about the RP as a sort of overflow facility, that has now that's now flowing back into the market um, and has sort of neutralized. Uh, a lot of the sort of the liquidity dynamics around sort of the treasury, um, you know, the TGA rebuild and sort of ongoing uh, issuances. And that's why the treasury is leaning more towards bills and their issuances because they want to sort of utilize that sort of overflow facility. Um, but at the same time, QT is continuing to sort of, uh, you know, chip away at, you know, at, at the other end of the spectrum. So they've been sort of in balance, I would say, for the past six months or so. And I think that would probably continue so long as the reverse repo has funds to give. Um, but that, I, yeah, I think the, the bigger issue is what happens once that facility has been drained um, and sort of what the Fed decides to do with the quantitative tightening at that point. Thank you, Last Bear and Joseph, once again, for breaking down how the reverse repo works. Both your explanations are without comparison. So I kind of want to keep piggybacking on this topic. Lynn, you stated that, quote, if the Fed finds itself in a position in 2024 where the reverse repo facility is drained and it has to stop decreasing its balance sheet and perhaps even start increasing its balance sheet, even if inflation levels are still above target, that could cause quite a change in market perception about the Fed's ability to keep inflation under control. Lynn, can you explain that a little bit more here for the listeners and kind of expand upon Last Bear and Joseph's comments? Sure. So right now we're in a position where, uh, as they point out, that reverse repos are an overflow facility. That, that basically can be considered excess demand for T-bills. Um, and it's not always that case. So, for example, back in 2019, um, there was the opposite problem. There were too many T-bills being issued uh, relative to liquidity conditions, and so that blew out into uh, repo markets, and the Federal Reserve had to end their quantitative tightening and come back with uh, some mild degree of, of balance sheet, either flattening or 
or slow expansion uh, in order to improve those liquidity conditions. Of course, that got a lot less fanfare because there was no major inflation at the time. And so that was something that, you know, you mostly just saw people arguing about financial plumbing on. It wasn't really a, a you know, primary economy thing. Um, at the current time, we're still in this limbo where the Federal Reserve is doing quantitative tightening, but also money's coming out of reverse repos. So you have a fairly balanced liquidity condition uh, domestically and to some extent globally. And so investors read into every print that happens, but really it's the same structure just going forward uh, at the current time and for the past while. But when we look out further, once this reverse repo facility is drained, <clears throat> the challenge is that when you run very loose fiscal policy and rather tight monetary policy, that is, um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a pro-growth, strong currency mix that, to do, but it's inherently hard to maintain longer term because it eventually you can run into liquidity issues with the treasury market. You can run into uh, just various difficulties, difficulties in sustaining that ongoing output. So whether it's 2024, whether it's 2025, partially that determines, that comes down to like how much bill issuance they do versus how much coupon issuance they do. What are asset prices going to look like? All of that can affect the level of deficits that occur. But I think the challenge comes if you hit a point, and this is why I keep talking about how, to me, the less interesting question is, do we hit 2%? It's what happens after we hit 2% or after we're in this zone for a while, um, that they risk having another period of inflation going forward because they could be in a position where they're no longer able to you know, tighten their balance sheet as much as they would want to in the face of these deficit conditions due to things that are outside of the control. Like, you know, for example, they had to briefly loosen conditions during the banking crisis. They could have to briefly loosen conditions again if there were to be a treasury liquidity crisis, uh, similar to the gilt market of last year. Um, and so all the, the focus is on basically, can they get back down to 2%? Whereas my view is, okay, let's say you do get to 2% or let's say some of these metrics show that we're already uh, with a two-handle. Um, when you go forward, you know, next year, the year after that, uh, once they risk taking their foot off the, the, the brake, um, if you have a downward move in the dollar, if you have a downward move in real yields, um, some of these inflation characteristics are still there. The wage pressures, uh, the energy pressures, supply side being pretty tight for both of those metrics – I think that's the thing that the market is maybe not looking at. And so, for example, I don't have particularly strong views of the next three to six months, but I, I, I'm more bullish on inflation than the five-year projections currently are by the market. I think that they're understating the risks of inflation five years out. Thank you, Lynn. Jem and Bob, do you have any comments here on reverse repos or Fed balance sheets while we're on topic? Are these part of the macro flows, as Jem puts it? And just forewarning, we will be streaming the Powell Presser in about eight minutes right here on Twitter, as well as the Unusual Whales Twitch, twitch.tv slash Unusual Whales. But uh, before that, Jem and Bob, any kind of follow-up comments here? I mean... Uh... I'm not going to step in front of uh, Joseph and, and uh, <laughs> reverse repos. Uh, you know, the, those are the guys to listen to on that. I will say it does provide significant liquidity for the front end of the curve. And to the extent it does give, like uh, Joseph was saying, that the Treasury some flexibility to shorten duration. And that, that's really the next thing I'm looking for as well. We've seen clues 
um, uh, of that. But if they if they do that, that will be that will allow that liquidity to really be pulled into the capital markets, and I think that's important. Yeah, I think from my perspective, I mean, we saw very much today that uh, that the person who holds the keys to the duration dynamics in the economy is Janet Yellen and not uh, Chairman Powell. Uh, the the choice of how they're doing quantitative tightening and the sort of pa- passivity of quantitative tightening that they're doing means that um, you know mostly the balance sheet effects uh, on duration and and the duration effects from a policy standpoint are determined by Treasury and Treasury you know. Interestingly enough, from a policy perspective, didn't adhere to the sort of standard technocratic approaches uh, and, and guidelines and instead made a meaningful policy decision today uh, by, by shortening duration. So, you know, that's a very different world than we were in, uh, you know, before this last couple of uh, announcements. Thank you, Bob. So what I want to do here, actually, last spare, go ahead real quick. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to add that there also is uh, potentially a situation where sort of the increased billage issuances is sort of the expedient move today. But then going down the road, once the RRP is drained, you then have this massive supply of bills that you need to continue to roll um, all, the, all the time going forward. And so that I think it's it's a it's a I understand why they're making that decision today to sort of move towards that shorter duration paper. But um, there's a chance that, that could come back to bite them in the future once they don't have that easy money that they can tap from the RRP. Thank you, Last Bear. So what I want to do here real quick is just kind of run down the panel for any closing thoughts and feel free to plug anything you're working on, like I said, here at the tail end. We will be streaming the Powell Presser right here, the audio on Twitter, and again, the video. Closing remarks here, starting with Joseph. Well, first of all, thanks so much for inviting me. Really enjoyed being here and learned a lot from all the panelists. So one thing I thought was really interesting is that today is the first day since I can remember where it was the Treasury funding statement that was more interesting than, than the Fed Presser. So I think maybe that marks a change as to what policy will be like going forward. Um, another thing I know many people here are interested in learning about how this works. I would encourage you guys to go to the Treasury Funding website today, and they have two very good presentations detailing about how they're thinking about this and what they think drives uh, drives recent rise in yields. I think those are really good and interesting documents to look at. And if you're interested in learning more about my takes on the Fed, I will have a video on my YouTube channel, Joseph Wang, uh, giving my thoughts on the FOMC press conference later today. Beautiful. Definitely check all of that out, folks. Joseph's Joseph's feedback on these are invaluable. So it's it's a very a very good thing, and I'm very grateful for having him here each time we do these. So thank you, Joseph. Jem, anything you want to add here at the end? Uh, yeah, I'll just start out by saying, uh, you know, always such a pleasure to be on here with Bob and Joseph uh, and, and Last Bear. Uh, but incredible, awesome to have Lynn and, and Michael on here as well. And 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 uh, what a wonderful group to to kind of take all the different perspectives. Uh, I could do this in my spare time. Um, but, uh, but I, if you guys want a little bit more perspective on, uh, on, on our, the way we see world, the world, not just from a macro perspective, from flows and, 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 uh, and vol perspective, uh, check out kaivolatility.com backslash news. Uh, you can subscribe to kind of our, our weekly 
uh, media and whatever else we're putting out there. Um, and obviously, if you're uh, interested in kind of trading in a non-correlated, investing in a, in, in a non-correlated way in, in, in this kind of macro-driven world, uh, give us give us a look at kaivolatility.com. Check that out for sure, folks. Gem's always got really good takes when it comes to market vol. Bob, anything you want to add here? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Lynn and Michael, great to have you on. Uh, uh, great con contributions to this conversation. Uh, for those of you who um, uh, don't follow me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter where you get my uh, steady stream of macro takes uh, in terms of what's going on. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in what we're up to uh, during my day job, which is uh, at Unlimited Funds, where we're trying to bring diversified, low-cost uh, index, two and in 20 index products to every investor, uh, definitely check us out at unlimitedfunds.com. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Bob. Definitely check them out, folks. Michael, do you have any closing thoughts here before we kick over to the J-Pow Presser? Uh, I mean, the only thing I would just emphasize is I think the fundamentals broadly support, you know, a more cautious perspective. I think the Fed is going to have to be very slow to adopt that. Again, the key question for all of us is going to be how hawkish and how he uh, conveys that information um, in this in this presser. Um, you know, people went into this event very well hedged. I highlighted that this morning that we had seen a, a significant premium paid up for short dated puts. Those have now largely evaporated. People will have tried to take um, salvage at least some of those losses. That in turn means that the dealers were out buying futures or increasing their, uh, decreasing their Delta hedges against those puts that's pushed the market higher. Now we get to see the main event, which is this Powell come out, particularly hawkish. Um, and my general read is, is that people are um, relatively sanguine about this. Um, you know, the, I, I think the consensus on this group that um, Powell is going to sound hawkish, but that they're done, it's going to be interesting to see if he can actually shake that a little bit. That's, that's going to be my real question. Really good point to make, Michael. I'm pretty excited to see what's said. Last and definitely not least, Lynn, do you have anything to wrap us up here? And again, really grateful to have both Michael and Lynn here joining our regular group of panelists. This has been a really great panel today. I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate everyone here. Um, I would just emphasize the focus on fiscal policy more than monetary policy. We've been in this kind of 40-year environment where monetary policy was more important. Uh, obviously, with the COVID stimulus, there was a, like a two-year period where fiscal became uh, very important. Uh, during 2022, monetary dominance briefly got back in control. Um, but ever since really kind of late 2022, we've been back in the environment where arguably fiscal is back in control. Um, I've written about fiscal dominance uh, over the past year pretty heavily. And uh, I, I think Joseph's comment about how some of these treasury statements were more impactful for the markets and uh, people's positioning than the, the FOMC statement. I think that that's that, you know, that's pretty much says it all. And I think that that's that's probably going to be a recurring topic uh, in, in the years ahead. Thank you so much, Lynn. And thanks, everybody, for coming. We are going to kick over to the presser right now. Give me just a few seconds to set up the audio and definitely go check out all of our panelists today. You're going to get a lot of invaluable information from each and every one of them. <laughs>